The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What's up, everybody? This is Dave Schmoltz, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Schmozone Podcast. We're going to have a special guest today. Check this out before we start. This episode is brought to you by SoRight. Go to SoRight.com and make sure you use the promo code SCHMO to get 20% off because these products are amazing. They are a must for your recovery. They got the so spine here, and we have the SoRight itself. You got lower back pain. You have psoas pain, hips pain, shoulder pain, inner thigh pain. It's a must. You got to use this. I use it every time after my workouts. You will not be disappointed. There we go. Hello there, everybody. Welcome back to the Schmo Zone podcast. This is the Schmo. My co-host is... Helen Esports. Great day, because our special guest today, the man, the myth, the legend, the oh. one and only, the future Hall of Fame broadcaster, the movie star, John Anik in the flesh. How we doing? We're doing great, man. I mean, this is a bucket list interview for me. I feel like I'm back in my radio days, professional cans, microphones, and media players as well. It's great to be with you, sir. It's great to finally have you on. Yes, man. I mean, you know I've admired you from afar, uh, both sides of you, really. I think you're just doing an incredible job, and I know you guys have the deepest knowledge of the sport as anyone, and uh, I know UFC President Dana White was here not all that long ago, so uh, it's, it's an honor to follow the boss man for sure. Well, it's supposed to be you, then him. He's actually uh, you know, supposed to be following you. We had the order reversed this time. Well, hey, I'll take the schmo any way I can get him, but it's really good to be with you guys for sure. It's great to have you here. Thanks, man. I wish the world was in a better place, but we're going to make the most out of the time together. Exactly right, man. That's all we can do. I'm in Vegas for a couple weeks. I thought about going home between shows, but given the quarantines and the COVID tests and everything else, it just made more sense to uh, to stay out here. And, of course, I get a day like this to be able to chop it up with you guys instead of doing childcare. So I'll fucking take it. We- we'll take it too. <laughs> but no Father's Day, like, back home? So that was the tough thing, right? And my son will turn two this week, which is lost on him. We celebrate that any time. But yeah, it was hard. But yesterday was a little bit tough, you know, being in the hotel room solo for Father's Day. But uh, it is what it is. You know, there's enough work to be done. And I find whenever I get emotional or homesick, and those are real emotions for me, I just dive into the prep of which there is so goddamn much. So I did 10 fighter cards yesterday, and that kind of deviated my brain, you know. How, How long does that take you? Well, the fighter cards are, I, I'm old school, so I handwrite an indi- a new fighter I've card seen on for, your every, Instagram. for yeah. every fighter for every new show. So it depends on the fighter. I'll have film on in the background as I'm doing it. Probably 10 or 12 hours per card of handwriting, um, which so is about a half an hour per fighter. So, uh, But, you know, the only thing that could blow this whole thing up, as fans have warned me, is if my house catches fire. I don't have them in a safe. I have this fighter card library of 3,000 fighters that I cheat off of while I'm making the new card. And my biggest fear is that uh, I'm going to lose that library because it's not backed up. 
and you have post-fight interview duties. The Schmo saw you this week. Are you getting used to doing those distant post-fight interviews in those intimate moments for those fighters after that war and the carnage that they have inside the octagon? I know I speak for Joe Rogan when I say I hate doing the post-fight interviews outside the octagon. I mean, I the first show I ever did in 2012, that was something that was entrusted with me. So I, I've been doing them a while, less so recently, obviously, because I've been working with Joe, but you do miss that intimacy. And I do think there's a, an obvious personal connection that we can have here that we wouldn't have if we were doing this on Skype or Zoom. So it was my first experience Saturday night doing them from a distance. And uh, I, I'm hoping that somehow, some way in, in Abu Dhabi Fight Island, we're, we're in the octagon. We'll see. going to take off the schmo glasses because... I, myself, Dave, have a lot of yes. questions I want to ask. Been waiting a long time for this. Uh, you've been a legend, legendary broadcaster for a long Thank time you, in this game. When do you feel like you truly found your voice as a broadcaster? Is there a moment in time that you remember you're like, I'm here? I'm well, I'll, I'll take you back to Bellator season one in 2009. So at the time, I was sort of ESPN's default mixed martial arts guy. One of the few guys that knew what MMA was an acronym for and one of the few guys at ESPN that had taken an interest in the sport. So when Bjorn Rebney is launching Bellator, I was the first guy he called to be the play-by-play -play guy. It didn't matter that I had never called a combat sport in my life. I had done some football, but I had never called combat sports. But at that point in my career, I knew that I wasn't getting enough live events at ESPN. It was all the desk stuff. I was, I was sick of being in Bristol, Connecticut, being a highlight machine. I wanted to do play-by-play. -play. So somewhere during that first season with Bellator, even though mixed martial arts was far less in my wheelhouse than football or baseball or basketball, um, I found my, my groove and my voice, I think. And, and certainly there have been many modifications and hopefully improvements uh, since. You know, If you're not getting better, you're definitely getting worse. But I do believe midway through that season, it was like, all right, you're not the foremost MMA expert in the world, but you are a trained, classically trained broadcaster, diehard sports fan. And you just have to believe in yourself and stay in your lane. And slowly but surely, I felt like I found my voice. I've worked with 15 or 20 different broadcasting combinations in the UFC. We had a new one just this past weekend with me, Dom, and, and Mike. So uh, I don't know that you ever fully find your voice. I think as you get older, uh, you start to care less what people think. Um, I had to have a lot of thick skin, especially early on. But uh, still finding that voice. But I guess 2009 was the first time I felt really confident on a microphone. Quick side note, I don't think Keith Peterson was refereeing this past weekend. <laughs> That's right. Dom Reyes, or, or Dom, <laughs> Dominic Cruz was right. there. Um, was that kind of on purpose? Did you notice that? Did, uh, you know, I'm not putting it together until you put it together for me right now. So the Nevada State Athletic, Athletic Commission only brought Keith Peterson in within the last year. So he only recently became part of that Nevada mix. So I do think maybe there's some other guys who, who would have seniority. But uh, I don't know, maybe Mark Ratner, the great Mark Ratner, knew that Cruz was going to be in the building and he decided to, to have some separation. That's interesting. Mark Ratner, he's, he's a legend in the game yes. too. So I think, and he was there also in Jacksonville. So I think he knows, and he probably combined one and two. And yeah. that was a smart decision behind the scenes that no one's going to be talking about. Yeah. That's interesting. But yeah, Cruz is uh, moving on from that. I'm excited that he wants to fight again. I think for Dom, now having some separation and having spent so much time with him over the last week, socially and, and business wise. He's just having nightmares about the loss, you know. I mean, he puts so much stock into this, right? I mean, he worked four years essentially for this moment, and even though it wasn't an optimal training camp, uh, those championship opportunities are few and far between. So he's still sort of living in it every day and trying to sort of get out the other side as best he can. But is there someone that he's kind of targeting? I don't think so. I think when you're the consensus greatest bantamweight of all time— yeah. 
all fights are open to him. You know, sure. most guys, with the exception of, of Aljo and Jan and, and the guys truly at the top, I think would relish the opportunity to fight Dominic Cruz. So I think for him, it's just about building back up. And stands to reason, as as much talent as there is at the top of that division, he still might only be two wins away from getting another crack. So for him, I think it's less about the adversary and more about just somehow, some way, staying healthy, getting a win, and, and getting untracked. To circle back to the broadcaster side of things, I'm sure you get these messages all the time. A lot of kids out there, college students, high school students, don't even have to put an age on it, would ask you, hey, man, I really love what you're doing. I'd love to aspire to be you, to be in your shoes, to be a broadcaster. And I know in the day and age we live in now, this digital age, um, what it looks like now might be completely different than it looked like when you were growing up. What's the best advice you have for someone who's trying to get into this career? Well, it'll sound simplistic, and I'll try to do this as efficiently as possible, but you have to be ready when your opportunity presents itself. You know, Dana White comes in here, you got to be ready to go, right? So when I went to ESPN Radio in Bristol, Connecticut in, I don't know, 2004, 2005, I had sent my demo tape to Montana and New Mexico, everywhere. I couldn't get a bite in South Dakota, but I got a call back from the ESPN Radio National Network in Bristol, Connecticut. So I went down for my audition. Little did I know the audition was going to be the 4.20 p.m. Eastern National Sports Update on the air to thousands of radio stations across the United States. I thought I was going to audition in a studio like this for a producer, not live. And he was like, yeah, you're going to go in there and do the 420. And obviously, if you can't hang, we'll know it pretty quickly. Right. And I didn't find out that day that I had been hired, but that was my indoctrination into doing a national sports update. And you you better be ready because you don't know even when you're going for what you think is a job interview, if they're going to put you on national radio. So thankfully I was ready that day and it's hard to get opportunities in this business. I remember sending out demos and saying, all right, you need three to five years of perfect. How the fuck am I going to accrue three to five years? You know, a professional broadcasting experience, you know, eventually you, you get an internship and you bang down a wall or two and you find a way, but you have to be ready because you could be an aspiring broadcaster listening to this and tomorrow could be the day and most of you maybe aren't ready. So got to figure out a way to get those reps somehow, start your own podcast, even if your mom and dad are the only ones listening. And now, especially, I mean, I think in the digital era, right, a lot of it has changed. Whereas kind of back then, even when we were both in high school, college, it's sending demo reels. But I think now, isn't it more of like a YouTube, social media, kind of... Vimeo, like yeah. private links, too. <laughs> yeah, it's completely it. different. Yeah. yeah, you know, when I graduated college at the University of Arizona in 2012, I was sending out disc CDs to hundreds of local stations. They were trying to crack a top 150, top 200 market, just like right, yourself. Right. Um, and I think even after interning for free at uh, Comcast Sportsnet Chicago, uh, which is now NBC Sports affiliate, I think the only bite I got was in Dothan, Alabama to be yeah. a weekend uh, news anchor, uh, weekday sports right. anchor. And I, I figured, hey, look, you know, things are moving to digital. And this is back in 2012. I'm going to get into LA or New York, the two biggest markets, and I will grind and figure out a way to, to make my own path through Amazing. sports production. But I think to your point too, it's like you have to be willing to take a step back to to, to take two steps forward or take a sidestep. You might not exactly be loving what you're doing to yeah. start, but you need to get your reps. You need to earn 
the right to take the next level and to get the exposure. Yeah, I mean, I remember in 2003, I was making $25 writing a story for the Metro West Daily News, and I called my dad, which I didn't like to do. I was like, dude, I can't I can't pay my rent. My rent's $600. I couldn't pay my rent this 17 years ago. He's like, dude, I might have a savings bond from your bar mitzvah. I don't know what to tell you, you know? So <laughs> Sounds familiar. <laughs> so my roommate paid my rent that month, and, and obviously I'm in a different place right now, but you have to be willing to to do those things. And for me, the hardest thing was getting an internship, right? So I thought I was going to be a businessman at one point in time. I started studying for the GMATs to go get my MBA. And I was like, there's no way I can pass that GMAT test. So let's go back to broadcasting school so we can get an internship. Because when I was trying to get an internship, they wanted to give me course credit in order to get me in. And I couldn't get course credit. I was a college graduate. So I took out a $12,000 loan, went back to the Connecticut School of Broadcasting with the sole purpose. Felt like I knew enough about broadcasting. I just needed to get the internship. So I felt like I paid $12,000 for an internship, and that's what gave me the break to, to get in the business. But did you start off as a sports writer? Yes. I, okay. I, I ran into too many Chuck Mindenhalls, and I realized that uh, even though my copy was clean, it wasn't creative or thoughtful enough to, to do that long term. And I also felt like when we would have sports arguments in the newsroom, I could articulate myself. So that's when the wheels kind of started to churn, maybe radio, maybe TV, and uh, radio was really my passion, and uh, that's how I was able to eventually, you know, transition to TV. So. Could we have one sports argument real quick? Oh, please. You're a Boston guy. Yes. Let's talk about Tom Brady, who many refer to him as the GOAT, but let's talk about his legacy. I forgot to ask Dana this question last week, because I know he's also a Tom Brady guy, but I figure it's perfect to ask you this question. Look, um, there's Spygate. Right. right there's the flake gate. A lot of there's stuff. coach Bill Belichick. Um, do you put any type of asterisks to Brady's name, or do you just widely consider him the goat? You put that goat emoji next to Tom Brady. I think he's the greatest of all time. I I was a big Peyton Manning fan, right? And he was Tom's chief rival, but I just felt like nobody played that quarterback position like Peyton Manning. But yes, I think Tom Brady's the greatest of all time. I don't know that there's any asterisk. Deflate gate is a non-starter with me. I can understand Spygate if that sort of gets under your nerves. But, you know, Brian Stam, my former broadcast partner, when he was playing football at Navy, they used to send the captains into the parking lot to take the football, scuff them up, sit on them. You know, that I don't put much stock in Deflategate. But, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of respect for Brady because athletically he didn't have what Peyton had at all, and he was able to build himself uh, into the greatest quarterback of all time. But Belichick's my guy right there. I mean, I am Team Belichick every – I mean, my next tattoo, if it's not game bread, it's going to be Bill Belichick signature so uh yeah no no asterisk for me my man yeah you still got that uh nate tattoo diaz the it, nate diaz of course uh, i mean what are you gonna get it removed you know you can't yeah no yeah, that was uh don't try to get it removed oh, no those are my guys i mean i don't know if i'm still welcome in stockton california but there was a huge backstory to the 209 tattoo that people didn't realize i mean nick diaz was really a big part of the inspiration for the for the tattoo so uh all's well that ends well I think uh, Peyton Manning's the best regular season quarterback yeah. of all time, and then you could put Brady's the greatest of all time in that argument. But are you saying Brady's the greatest football player of all time or the greatest quarterback of all time? Oh, not football player. Uh, quarterback. Okay. I mean, there, I, there are a lot of football players. Uh, Ray Lewis, probably the best football player I've seen. I mean, Lawrence Taylor, I was, I was a little young for him. Um, I remember there was a time where no one could tell me that Marshall Falk wasn't the greatest football player of all time. So, but yeah, I go linebacker, I go defense. I'm a, I'm a Chicago guy. Okay. I mean, naturally there's defense, but I wasn't alive for this, but my dad was forcing me to watch the tape of the 85 bears oh. and whatnot, but sweetness, Walter Payton, because yes. he could punt, he could throw the yeah. ball, he could block, he right. could run. You could argue he's not the greatest 
running back of all time, I think maybe you can make that argument for like a Barry Sanders. Right. But like the best football player yeah. of all time from complete package, like we're talking athleticism in multiple positions. I think Walter Payton's got a great case. And uh, so you're a Bears guy. I'm a diehard. Unfortunately, I'm a diehard Bears guy. Well, you know, I. You got Dicko over my shoulder right <laughs> there, right. the coach. That's right. Uh, the Trubisky era is over, I guess, huh? Possibly. It sucks because I went to U of A when Nick Foles was there, and I guess right. statistically he would be the greatest quarterback at, at football history for me. And, you know, and obviously I overlapped with Gronk. He was there too, but it sucks for me because I really wish the Bears would have went out and got someone who I don't think is signed right now and Cam Newton. I know. I wish the Patriots would go after him, you know? I mean, the Patriots don't have a quarterback as we sit here on uh, whatever it is, June 20th, 25th, you know? I mean, Pats don't have a QB. Colin Kaepernick's still available. I know. I would like to see that, too. But, yeah, I uh, we'll see what the Bears can do. But uh, it's a great franchise, obviously. And I've actually bet on them recently in the past few years because I've seen value on them to win the Super Bowl. And uh, they had a decent shot a couple years ago. Lewis Riddick, actually, a couple years ago, you may recall, the, yep. the great ESPN analyst at the beginning of the playoffs picked the Bears to run the table, and then they lost to the Eagles, uh, I believe, in that first game. Yeah, I thought he was crazy for picking <laughs> them, too. We didn't have a great kicker. I mean, uh was it Cody Parkey when he shanked it a bunch of times off the goalpost? It's goal a big post? part of the game. Pat's just drafted a new kicker. Yeah, it's a hard position to fill. Yeah, uh, Gowskowski yeah. uh, had a great run. Um, but also with Trubisky, you know, obviously they're not picking up the the, the option year, and uh, I don't think it's necessarily over. Right. But then again, let's still hope there's a football season, though, this I year. I know, and just because you brought up Nick Foles, and I know this doesn't appeal to maybe some of our audience, but I just have to tell you, I was at ESPN for a Pac-12 media day way back in the day, right? Yeah. And Nick Foles stole the goddamn show. I mean, everybody watching him throw the football. Colin Cowherd has talked about it. We were all blown away. I mean, Leinart was there. I, I don't, Jake Locker made There were a lot of good Pac-12 quarterbacks there, and everybody left that day talking about Nicky Foles for what it's worth. Yeah, Pac-12 always has great quarterbacks. Yeah. And uh, Nicky Foles, too. I think he went to the same high school as Drew Brees. So oh, it, really? Yeah, they in, in Texas. Something like, it might be like Westlake, Texas or something like that. Something in that water there. Interesting. Texas football. But yeah, let's go back to MMA. I'm so we had to do that little sidetrack. Got side that track. out of the way. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, DC, Stipe 3, your broadcast partner here in a smaller cage, August 15th at the Apex? Crazy. Ken Flo and I were talking about this on our podcast this morning because he thinks it's just undeniable that it's an advantage for Daniel Cormier in this smaller octagon. And for those who think we're making too much of this, just go look at the measurables. It's 31.8% smaller. It effectively changes the sport. Kenny thinks without a shadow of a doubt it favors all grapplers. I think Dominic Cruz was intimating on the broadcast that for someone like Stipe, you know, who who in theory feels like DC might be trying to take him down this time around if he's healthy and can wrestle, you know, you get up on that fence pretty quickly, right? So maybe I felt like for Stipe, it might actually benefit him that DC doesn't have all of this canvas to work his talent and that if Stipe can get his back to that fence pretty quickly, that'll maybe prevent some of the obvious takedown situations for Daniel Cormier. So I do think it changes the fight. Um, but I'm not the expert to go to in terms of who it benefits necessarily. But I'm excited this fight is happening. Obviously, it's been a year since we will have seen a UFC heavyweight championship fight. And uh, we'll see. I, you know, I do think both guys are probably thinking about retirement a little bit. So uh, I think when you talk about legacy and heavyweight legacy, it stands to reason that the man who leaves that octagon with the belt is the greatest MMA heavyweight of all time. And the fact that that could all be on the line in one fight is pretty crazy. 
I agree with that. And uh, I think that's an angle that a lot of people aren't talking about. And it hasn't brought up um, much. How much longer does Stipe Miocic right. want to be fighting? We all talk about Daniel Cormier fighting. Um, win or lose, this is consensus. We can all agree that this is going to be his last MMA fight, pro MMA fight. I think so. Uh, I think so. But he's also one of our highest paid athletes and our most demanded athletes. And there is a John Jones out there. So I don't know that DC would ever be 100% mm. retired. And he's the ultimate competitor, too. He's just the ultimate competitor. He's still underappreciated as an all-time great and a future Hall of Famer. Still doesn't seem to enter these goat conversations for whatever reason. I don't know if it's because, you know, his body fat percentage isn't as low as the schmoes. But he doesn't get the long-term, big-picture credit as one of the all-time greats that I think he deserves. So he's on your Mount Rushmore. Well, Mount Rushmore's tough with four slots because if you're not giving Amanda Nunes one, then what are we doing here, right? I mean, Nunes has to get one. Khabib's 28-0, but most people think strength of schedule-wise, maybe he doesn't belong. I mean, to me, Nunes and George St. Pierre are slam dunks. John Jones is the greatest MMA athlete I've ever seen, and you're giving me one slot then for Khabib and Fedor and DC and everybody else? Mount Rushmore. I mean, Anderson Silva, GSP. Yeah. It's, it's just there's just too many guys. I mean, I, I think it's easier to get to six or seven. For me, four is impossibly difficult. You still got to three quicker than Dana. I have to give you that credit. Well, I probably thought about it before he came in here. You know, <laughs> I, I had given it some on thought it. on it. Yeah, I I, ESPN, I think, did something about it. But I, Nunez, he was, Dana was the first one I heard who, who put Nunez on there. And it's like, man, she should be a slam dunk. So I was yeah. glad that he, uh, he led with that. But you mentioned Habib. What do you think about him versus Justin Gaethje? I think it stands to reason that it'll be his his toughest title defense, uh, given Gaethje's current form and his style and everything that he brings to the table. Uh, I hope somehow, some way, we have fans for that one. But I think it's more competitive than than the early betting line, which I think has Khabib in the minus two sixty range or so. Uh, but again, look at Dustin Poirier. He said going into the Habib fight, I've, I, I've done all the work, even though for Dustin, maybe the timeline didn't give him six or eight months that he would have liked. He only had four months or so in between Holloway and Habib. But he said, until you're in there with a guy like Habib, you don't really know what he feels like. So even though I have the right training partners in theory, until I feel Habib on the ground, I won't know. And I think for Justin, there's going to be some of that, too. And Justin's a smaller lightweight. Until he's on the ground with the bear getting mauled, I don't know that he really knows what he's in for. So uh, Khabib deserves to be the favorite. He's one of the greatest of all time. But uh, if anybody can sprawl and lean on heart and conditioning and get back to his feet, uh, I would bet on Gaethje to do that. I did want to get to your other colleague, Joe Rogan. Humongous rise. I mean, I grew up watching Fear Factor. A lot of people are like, oh, that's the Fear Factor guy. And he's kind of one of the pioneers in UFC a lot in educating people in MMA and broadcasting and stuff, and just see where he's at today. That Spotify deal, yeah, hundred plus million dollars. Um, kind of where have you seen Joe Rogan's rise? And from your standpoint, what's it been like in your shoes? Because you're there with him for every pay per view card. It's incredible, uh, and certainly I don't take that seat for granted. Uh, the first time I ever worked with him was in 2012 at UFC 155. I got the call on like three days' notice to do my first pay-per-view, and you know he embraced me the same way then that he did early 2017. I think it was when I became the number one guy, and we've become great friends. You know, it's funny people always ask like, "What do you guys talk about?" backstage. It's like, we talk about fighting. I mean, we talk about other stuff. We talk about coffee, whatever. but the conversation almost always circles back to fighting because we are just so passionate about our love of mixed martial arts, and we don't get that many opportunities to talk about it. So we talk a lot about fighting, but 
It's incredible. I don't have enough superlatives for that guy. He's the greatest of all time. I'm very disappointed that he hasn't been given more national recognition, even though he don't give a shit, I can assure you. But how has this man not been nominated for a sports Emmy in the United States of America, given how long he's been? I know it's an old boys club a little bit, but I wish he would get more mainstream credit for just how good an analyst he is. And the last thing I'll say, I'm a little long-winded on this, but he worked in a two-man booth for 20 years. And then come 2017, it's like, by the way, Goldie's not coming through that door, and you're also in a three-man booth, which is a totally different navigation as a broadcaster, and he didn't bat an eye, and, and humbly I would say I think he's having more fun doing this job now than he ever has before, and, and hopefully we keep him having fun, and he does this for a long time. An absolute shame that he doesn't have that Emmy. I mean, it's, it's just, just a nomination, yeah. you know? I, it's like, they're, are they ignoring the sport entirely to not give him that acknowledgement? I don't, I don't get it. But I think the fans and the people that watch truly appreciate the greatness when they see it. Yeah. You know, some yeah. things don't have to be talked about, you know, especially the people don't have, that don't have to toot their own horn, that have to say, oh, I've done this, X, Y, and Z. Their actions certainly speak louder than their words. That's very true, and you put it well. And uh, the different broadcasting combinations for him, too, is something that I don't think much was made of. It's just, well, Rogan's the greatest of all time, so he can adjust, and he's adjusted masterfully. But think about it. If you're in a two-man booth, right? And again, I cut my teeth with the UFC in a two-man booth. But if you're in a two-man booth and I stop talking, there's only one guy who could chime in. And then when he's done, there's no one else that's going to chime in except for me. So I can let it breathe, and dead air is our friend, right? Because there's TV. You want to let a little silence. But in a three-man booth, there are two people who could chime in. So when Joe stops talking, I don't immediately fire back because DC's sitting there. So you do have to feel that out a little bit. And I give Joe a lot of credit for having like 20 years in a two-man booth. And uh, you even saw Bisping this weekend, right? He's been doing two-man booths. It's a different breed when you got to share the ball. But what is, um, what's it like preparing for that and all the preparation behind the scenes that we don't get to see? So a lot of play-by-play guys will tell you they get to maybe 30% of what they prepare. I think in a three-man booth, I probably only get to 20% of what I prepare because there are just less opportunities. Our sport moves so quickly that to try to tell a story about Shane Burgos's scoliosis as a kid and his spinal curvature at 49 degrees, how is this kid still fighting? I've told it during a lot of his fights, but if the walk isn't televised, i got to find a moment during a round to get that in there, which becomes very difficult. And now with a fighter walk, as soon as I pass the baton, I'm not getting it back. So the fighter walks are when we get a lot of that background information out there. And in a three-man booth, I'm, I'm not getting the ball back, you know. So it's tricky when you feel like 80% of what you're prepping isn't, isn't making it on the air. Um, but it kind of is what it is. You know, I have just embraced the role. And uh, I've said, too, and when I'm in a three-man booth, you know, you're not going to hear Dana White saying, oh, I really needed more Anik tonight, you know, with all due respect to myself, I could say that. I better have something really thoughtful to say because I'm staring to my right at the future Hall of Famer Joe Rogan and the future Hall of Famer Daniel Cormier or whomever else. So I got to pick my spots and uh, I'm okay, you know, taking a back seat at times if that's what's going to prevent a traffic jam because there's nothing fucking worse when we're all talking over each other. And I think that's what makes you such a talented broadcaster is knowing your lane and knowing when to speak and knowing when to let your colleagues speak. And you do such a great job balancing that. And I think that gets overlooked every single time you're on the broadcast. Not enough people bring that up, so I do want to take this time to mention that because that's something I know Helen and I and probably other people that are broadcasters can definitely appreciate because that is not easy. I appreciate it, especially coming from you guys. I really do. Um, You just got to check your ego a little bit. I think we all have one. Um, But for me, it may sound simplistic, but as long as the athletes and Dana White are satisfied, like that's really my audience. My bosses 
Dana and the fighters. And as long as they feel like we're we're shedding the most possible light on them, then uh, then I'm satisfied at the end of the day. The schmo opened up the episode. I'm not sure if you heard the schmo <laughs> say this. Say movie star. Back in oh, 2011, right. Nick Nolte, Tom Hardy. I love that movie. Uh, Warrior. Yes. It's a great freaking movie at the time. Well, I appreciate you saying that because since I played myself in you it, did. it's hard for me to put that movie over. But I thought it was great. I thought it was one of the better MMA movies, if not the greatest MMA movie I had seen. Me too. I, I absolutely. And was that your movie debut? I believe it was. Yeah. I mean, what was most interesting about it for me was that it, it we shot it two days before my wedding. So I got oh, married in Boston, wow. Massachusetts or Weston, Massachusetts, and I had to send my wife. We lived in Connecticut at the time because I was working at ESPN. I had to send my wife up to the wedding without me like two days early because I stuck around to film the movie. She was not happy at the time because, you know, your wedding week, we were going to go on of Tuesday. Course. I ended up arriving Thursday night by myself, but I was not going to miss that opportunity to be in a major motion picture. And not for nothing, when I got the script, I had like four wardrobe changes and all these lines. So uh, it's fun to look back on it now, but uh, crazy that week for sure. My first job in the real world real world was uh, in Los Angeles at Stars, the movie channel. I was like an assistant for international distribution, and I was working at the NFL Network doing production stuff on the side on the weekends. But I got uh, a nice blow-up poster of the movie Warrior wow. with Tom Hardy. So every day in our apartment, <laughs> when I go downstairs, I see that big Tom Hardy poster. And holy shit, the traps of that guy Dude. were unbelievable. It was like, it made Yoel Romero's traps look small. I, I mean, it, was he clean for that movie? Could he have been clean for that movie? No, but you're wait, absolutely no, right. No, you saw the protocol back That's then. right. But man, th I thought all those leading actors did a great job too. I mean, Nolte got nominated, if not one, for supporting actor. Yes, he did. So, yeah. A little warrior talk. I'll take it. I didn't expect that today. No, it was, it was, it's an underrated movie. I think we watched it at the beginning of quarantine. Helen had never seen it. Yeah. And I got her on to that movie, but I just, you know, let's go to war. Yeah. You know, You're making me want to go home and show it to my daughters <laughs> who probably are finally at the age where maybe they would appreciate it. I showed it you to them when they were younger and uh, right over the head. And, and speaking of your daughters, your children, um, they're watching the fights. Are you educating them on this? Is it still too young? How does that conversation go about with the, with the misses at home? So they have taken martial arts classes on two different occasions. And the first time I took them, they came out of the class and they were like, oh, daddy, that was so much fun. Can we never go back? And I'm like, well, it was fun. And they're like, yeah, we just don't want to go back. You know, they are girly girls. You know, they really How are cute. at their core. I mean, that is their inherent nature. And that's okay. Uh, but then I took them to a karate class recently. And they loved it. The problem is a lot of these martial arts schools, at least where we are in South Florida, they want a commitment of more than one day a week because you're going to fall behind the class if you're only in there one day a week. So we're trying to find a class that will be okay with them going in one day a week. They don't watch the UFC too much. I mean, Riley, my oldest daughter, is almost nine. She's starting to, to show an interest, particularly when the women are fighting. Um, but our sport is so superficially violent because of the blood, right? Football and boxing, to me, are horrifying at times to watch, you know? I mean, you guys have covered boxing. I've covered a boxing death. That sport, to me, every time I watch it, I'm cringing. Um, but I do think because of, of the blood, at least right now, I haven't dove all in. I know most of the fighters and my colleagues let their kids watch it all the time, but we're not there yet. Maybe, so, maybe soon. What makes boxing to you more dangerous than MMA? So when I was watching Tony Ferguson fight Justin Gaethje in Jacksonville, you know, my whole career as a boxing radio guy flashed before me because those are the type of fights that, that 
kill boxers, right? You're too tough for your own good. You're on your feet for 36 minutes. Maybe you don't get knocked down at any point. So you get a concussion and maybe you do get knocked down. And as long as you can get back to your feet in eight or 10 seconds, you come up and get another concussion, you know? So I covered a boxing death in 05, Lavander Johnson and uh, too tough for his own good. He slipped into a coma in the locker room and I think died a week later. But you see a lot of mismatches in boxing on these undercards. And even recently with, uh, with the Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder fight, you know, the fight that preceded it, you know, you got this plus 900 underdog tougher than hell. You know, you, it's like you feel like you're watching a guy just take years off his life, if not kill himself. So for me, boxing, having covered a death uh, is, is very hard for me to watch. And I feel like recently with um, the top ranked cards like Maxim Dadashev, who recently passed away right after mm-hmm. his fight or got into a coma, it's just like you hear more and more of that. And it's just really heartbreaking. Yeah. You bring up a good point, too. It's because in boxing, the best fighters don't fight the best fighters. There's a lot of mismatches to pad Mm -hmm. records, and you don't see that as much in high-level MMA. You don't get that. You get the best fighters fighting the best fighters. But another component that I always thought about is, like, when you get knocked down or you get concussed, you get a 10-second count to get back up. So you could get up and get concussed. And usually in MMA, if someone's concussed and they're they're out of it, you know, a referee, a veteran in the sport, someone like a Herb Dean is going to come in, intervene, and stop the fight. Fight. Absolutely. It's pretty rare that you'd get two or three concussions in an MMA fight. And uh, again, too, I just want these plus 900, plus 1,000 underdogs in boxing trying to change their life forever, fighting the guy who they're trying to showcase. And it, it's horrifying to watch, you know. But, Buster Douglas is 42 to 1, right? That's right. That's right. Um, but what about, like, for example, this past weekend, how Max quit? Yeah. Uh, in his corner, he was like telling his coach he couldn't go in, but then his coach was trying to have him, you know, go back in. So what's kind of your thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts on it. I mean, largely, I would say by the eighth or ninth time that mm-hmm. the athlete says I'm out, that maybe Robert should have changed his course. But I have a lot of respect for the way Robert Drysdale handled this situation. I thought he was he was collected. He was patient. Uh, his demeanor was, I think, perfect for a corner man who was really trying to get his athlete over a mental hurdle. I didn't think physically he was in any great danger. There were a couple things Max said, like he hits really hard and I don't want to do this or this isn't for me. There were a couple lines that suggested that he was going to leave fighting forever. So when I heard those things, maybe that gave me some pause, but I have a lot of respect for Drysdale for sticking to his guns and still supporting his own position, even in the wave of all this criticism. I think you have to deal with every case on a case-by-case basis, and I think it's too simplistic for a lot of journalists out there who are just saying, you know, a corner man has an obligation to protect his fighter. There's just more to it than that. And one thing that I did say on the post show is that if we had a crowd of 20,000 people, Mark Smith, the referee, doesn't hear that conversation, and Max gets back up and the fight potentially continues. So thankfully for Max's sake, the referee was in it and paying attention and, and saved him when he didn't want to go back out there. But uh, you won't you won't find any criticism uh, of, of Drysdale from me, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I just thought it was a very interesting situation because I think Max would have fought on the Contender Series. I think that's what he was originally right. slated for. And I think Hubbard was a huge step up in competition and taking that fight on such short notice and not having the stamina, the cardio of having a real training camp. You know, I saw it as 1-1. I think Max won the first round. And and that's, that's, I think, what Drysdale is saying is like it's a 1-1 fight and everything. But 
he definitely didn't have the cardio, the legs to continue. And even if he was going to gra- try and exchange with him and grapple with him, I don't think he would have had the stamina to stay on top of him and he would have taken a lot of damage. Yeah. So, you know, how that third round would have went, you know, there could have been some excessive carnage, maybe some of that trauma yeah. that, you know, if this kid's got a bright future ahead, he would never have that. Right. And I agree with everything you said. And physically, right, I don't know that there's much upside in sending him back out there because now if he does continue, it stands to reason that it's great that he didn't go back out there and absorb any unnecessary physical damage. It's crazy that Austin Hubbard, with his back up against the wall, fought as well as he did. And nobody's talking about Hubbard. So I do want to say we congratulate Austin Hubbard, who was like a plus 200 underdog. Roshkoff get a lot of credit from Vegas. Man, that gym uh, elevation over Dude. there in Colorado, that that is next level. They are really hot right now. But yeah, I mean, Max, I really hope he fights again if you don't know his backstory, and we could only get to some of it on the broadcast to my point earlier, but just really tough upbringing. Uh, went on sort of to defy odds and become an ACC wrestling champion at NC State at 165 pounds. I, I think there's a fighter in there with a lot of heart and a lot of potential, and I'm hoping that uh, Drysdale can uh, convince him to, to fight on because I think he's got value. And how damn of a great story would that be if he becomes oh, a contender dude. in the UFC? Right. After that, I mean, that's your debut. It would be great. But uh, I do think that there is uh, some mental and physical toughness that you build up with volume fighting, and he hasn't had that. Uh, what about the main event? Since David brought up Team Elevation yeah. uh, with Curtis Blades, what did you think of his performance against Volkov? Dana wasn't happy with it. So it's funny because I loved this fight card, but I didn't love the main event. I thought it could play out largely like that. You know, Curtis Blades suggested after the fact that he can work on his cardio from round three on. So I don't know that you got the most invested Curtis Blades in the training camp leading up to this fight, if I'm being honest. You know, he came in 261. He was 248 for the JDS fight. That's a pretty significant difference. And even in our fighter meetings, he just, he didn't really have a lot of respect for Volkov's power relative to past opponents like Francis Ngannou and Mark Hunt and others who he knows can really crack. So, you know, I thought Curtis was dominant. I think 25 takedown attempts, many high amplitude ones is not a recipe for, you know, cardio sustainment long-term. So I think there's a lot of valuable lessons to be gained for Curtis. Divisionally, he's in a little bit of a tough spot, as you guys know, because of the two losses to Nganu. But uh, the matchup largely was custom-made for him in a 25-foot octagon, and, and I thought he was pretty dominant, all things considered. A topic that a lot of mainstream media, outside of just uh, traditional MMA journalists, are talking about, it's been coming up circling the past couple of weeks, is fighter pay. Everyone's been talking about fighter pay, and a lot of the top guys, like the John Joneses, the Jorge Masvidal's, they've been kind of in the news cycles talking about their disputes with their contracts and not fighting for what they're being offered. But also, my take on this, too, is the timing could not be any worse mm. with the pandemic not having a live gate and everything. I was just curious to get your thoughts on where we're at right now and if there's a solution to this moving forward. It's a really tricky thing, right? The roster continues to swell as we bring in fighters who make their short-notice debut and in theory get two or three or four fight contracts. And there's such a huge range from the guys who are making four or five million to show and maybe others who are making 10 or 20,000. So it's a really difficult thing. It's a really hard thing to quantify what the lower half guys on the roster, what are they bringing in when the UFC gives them 20 and 20, right? And you can win 40 grand that night, which is not a terrible payday, right, in theory. But how much value does that fighter have to the UFC? 
These are things I can't quantify what the internal metrics say about one fighter versus the other. Big picture, though, as a mainstream sports fan in the United States of America, I would tell you that I would like to see them unionize at some point in time, right? You're only 20 years in with this ownership group. The sport, it's hard for fans to recognize that it really is in its relative infancy. I don't know what the the true obstacles are to a union. Certainly getting the high-profile fighters on board would be a step in the right direction, but the UFC has been generous and gracious in so many ways in a discretionary backdoor way, and a lot of that stuff isn't publicized. So, uh, you know, not unlike some fighters and, and people in the sport came to Joe Silva's defense, you know, I think there are some people who would defend some of that generosity in the past, but uh, to say that fighter pay isn't an issue, I think, out of my mouth would probably be a little bit ignorant. And to your defense on those backdoor payments, literally when Dana walked in here, which did not did not show up on the podcast, I mentioned to him, how did Andre Feely uh, in that match not get, uh, get a bonus? How did he not get, how did that not get fight of the night? Because they gave four fighter bonuses and he wasn't one of them. He literally, oh, thanks for reminding me. Shot attacks and wow. everything. $50,000. No Andre way. Feely, yeah. How about that? Touchy How about the feely. schmo getting it done? The schmo huh? got it done. Touchy feely. You're welcome for that 50K. I'll take what? 10, 20% yeah. if you want. Thank you. But that's cool. That's cool to hear, obviously. And I will say as a staff employee in this time, right? And people could look at me and like, fuck Anik, right? He's still getting paid, right? But like Dana White was sending us videos to assure us of everything they were doing throughout the process when we were all gearing up to go to Lemoore, California on April 18th. And in that climate... I wasn't freaking out, but I was anxious, right? I was going to fly Miami to Denver, Denver to Fresno, take a 40-mile car ride to Lemoore in that climate. But he really reassured us. He kept us all on staff, which he didn't have to do. Um, so at least from a staff standpoint, uh, I can speak for our live production team. We have felt so damn supported by that guy. We're getting our COVID tests every Saturday. Are they testing you once a week, twice a week? I mean, I mean, I guess your situation differs. You're here a little bit longer in Vegas right. than normal. But uh, what's your testing like? Because we're so appreciative that every single Saturday that we're covering an event, right. we know mm -hmm. if we're positive or negative. And knock on wood, to this right. date, we've been negative every time. It's a little bit tricky, right? I've been trying to sort of sift through the misinformation that's out there. It's hard to know what to believe and what not to. I mean, I'll be tested three or four times this week. Um, but it, in theory, I mean, you can, you can take a, a test and it cannot manifest in your body until a couple days later. So who the fuck knows, you know? Yeah. But I will say, the way the UFC has handled the safety and security at this host hotel in Vegas is unbelievable. And it gives me confidence going to Fight Island uh, that we're in good hands. Because anyone who tells you in this climate, and I know there are a lot of coronavirus tough guys out there, but anyone who tells you they don't have any anxiety going to Abu Dhabi right now, I think is probably being a little bit disingenuous. I'm not afraid to say that I'm, I'm not like really looking forward to going two weeks away from my kids right now in this climate, but I'm confident in the procedures and, and a big part of me is obviously excited to, uh, to go call UFC 251. So we're going. When it's, are you leaving for that? So I'm going to come to Vegas on Sunday, July 5th. And I believe I will charter out of here, uh, some, uh, maybe the next day, but I'm coming here first to get tested and quarantine on the front end from Miami. So. All right, you just brought it up. Let's just quickly talk yeah. about it. I don't know if it's quickly. If you can't, uh, UFC 251. Everybody, if you're listening or if you're watching, head to mybookie.ag. Use the promo code SHMOZONE. They match up to 50% of what you put in. So 
up to $1,000. So if you put in $500, $250, you put in $100, they add in another $50. I mean, look, this is continuously week in and week out. The UFC is the only major sports organization putting on the cream of the crop, the best events around. So if you're going to use your money on gambling, use it here. Use it wisely. Use the promo code SchmoZone. I guess let's just start with the main event. Gilbert Burns against Kamaru Usman. It's just crazy. And by the way, those sports books in Vegas, they don't give you like $250 bonuses when you're when you're betting. So mybookie.ag, get on over there. But yeah, it's uh it's an exciting title fight, obviously. It's crazy as we are all getting ready for Dan Hooker this weekend mm-hmm. to think about what Dan Hooker did to Gilbert Burns back in July of 2018. And now here's Gilbert Dorino Burns, the former lightweight with six consecutive wins, fighting his not just teammate, but good friend Kamaru Usman. It's hard to to set this fight up and give it any sort of backdrop without starting with the friendship for me. Yeah, is are they both training with Henry Hoof? What's going yeah, on over there in South cornering? Florida? He will abstain. So I don't know if he is working with the athletes at all in the weeks leading up, but he's not going to corner either guy. Oh wow! Yeah, so that's such an interesting dynamic. They're boys. I mean, I. I feel like, unless I'm crazy, I feel like I saw Gilbert corner Kamaru one time. I mean, these guys are tight, and you've seen a lot of people who are close to them come out publicly and say, yeah, this is super weird. But hey, you might as well fight for the sports ultimate prize. And I do think that, in some respects, it... It eliminates some nerves. You know, we saw Kama Worthy as a plus 650 underdog turning the upset of the year against Devontae Smith. Those guys were boys, you know, trained together in Pittsburgh all the time. And I think maybe if it worked against Devontae, it worked for Kama Worthy. I think it stands to reason that Gil and Kamara are both going to just fight exceptionally well and go toe-to-toe because they've done it so many times before. I think they're going to be pretty comfortable once that door shuts. I've been texting with a teammate, Michael Chandler, uh, trying to get some inside information, who's doing what, you know, who's training where and everything like that. And he's kind of echoing a lot of the sentiments that you're saying about kind of Henry Hoof, kind of they have different scheduled times when they're coming into the gym. But you never know who's watching, who's going to say what. It's, It's such an interesting dynamic to have. Well, and when you're doing a one-on-one in striking, and some of these camps focus more on the opposition than others, but... You know, there's such intimate knowledge on all sides of this that if you're Henry and you're doing a a, a pad session with with Gilbert, are you mentioning? And you know, Camaro does that. No, like you can't even talk. I I don't know. I have a lot of respect for Kami Barzini and Greg Jones and all those coaches that are probably they're happy that they know they're leaving with the undisputed champion, but they're just really put off by the way it all came together. Bittersweet. Yeah, for yeah. sure. I yeah. guess. Yeah. Oh, where were you going? I was going to get to another fight, but let's let's have. Oh you do yeah, that. you read my mind. Uh, the co-main event. Yeah. The rematch against Volkanovski Holloway. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's really cool for guys who fight long-reigning champions. They know they're going to have to beat him twice, whether it's Rose against Joanna or Volko here against Holloway. He knew he was going to have to beat him twice. So I'm curious what. Not that he held back, but what the approach... I mean, a lot of people have talked about Holloway's approach and the requisite adjustments that he'll make, but what are Eugene Behrman and Volkanovsky cooking up, right, for this rematch? Because they had a very specific strategy, obviously, in that first fight. Seems like maybe they're prioritizing the finish in the second meeting. So, fascinating fight. Holloway, in theory, uh, will have made some adjustments and figure out a different way to fight this guy. But Volko's a beast, man. <clears throat> I thought he was a live underdog going into that first meeting. I think he deserves the distinction as the favorite here. And uh, again, I think really the th- thesis statement for me is what what type of adjustments was Max Holloway able to make? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's got to be the adjustments, but I can never get over the fact that 
Olkanovsky weighed 200 plus pounds yeah. in his rugby day, and he's like, what, 5'7? It's crazy. I mean, it's nuts. Now, it's 214 pounds. So some people have gone and run with this and said 240. So the highest he ever competed for the Warrilla Gorillas, I be- believe it was, in rugby league was 214 pounds. But, yeah, yeah it's still 70 pounds. Yeah, you know? that's why I was I was just being safe and saying 200-plus pounds yeah. there. But, yeah, yeah. no, I've, I've heard all the stories. And it's not an easy cut for him. You know, I, I do think that eventually you will see him compete at lightweight before all is said and done. Uh, so... And then the the Hall of Famer, the legend of yeah. sport, uh, Jose Aldo, Peter. I, I always get it mixed up. P, P, yeah, we, we go Pewter. 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 That's right. Pewter Jan. Uh, fascinating there, but a lot of... Uh, the big reason why Aldo's in this fight in the first place is because Henry Cejudo called them out, and they were supposed <laughs> to fight in Brazil prior to this pandemic stuff. Yeah, I don't know if Triple C told you, maybe it was you or someone else, that this is all his fault, but yeah. <laughs> But the king of Rio, man, I mean, I've been been to Brazil 27 times, so you don't have to sell me on Jose Aldo. You know, I almost got a Brazilian flag tattooed on my body if Betch Cohea had beat Ronda Rousey. That was the first tattoo bet, by the way. Okay. Nobody knew that one, but I have a huge soft spot for Brazil and the king of Rio, Jose Aldo, and uh, I have no problem that he's getting this opportunity. It's a little bit weird now that Aljamain Sterling has further solidified his case as the true number one contender. Um, And I guess I feel for Marlon a little bit because... Because the judges' scorecards that mattered did see that fight for him. But because he fought for this belt more recently, I'm okay with Aldo getting the opportunity. Piotr Jan deserves the distinction as the favorite. There's no doubt about it. You know, I know maybe people think his strength of schedule doesn't match up with a guy like Aljo, but I think Piotr Jan is ready for prime time. And uh, we'll see with Aldo. We'll see if, I mean, he looked great at 35 for me. He looked great cutting the weight, um, but he still has to do it time and time again. You know, do it this time, defend the belt potentially. So I'm happy he was able to do it once, but I'm not sure that Aldo's completely out of the woods when it comes to making 135. Now, before I ask you about the Andrade, Namajunas, their rematch, what's your next uh, tattoo bet? Well, I mean, I'm going to get a game-bred tattoo at some point. I mean, I'm in South Florida. That's my guy. We go way back, you know, Bellator Season 1 and everything else. You know, I was even going to do it on the neck in the exact same font. What's funny is that George told me that when I get it, he's going to go back and get his touched up. Because if you see his, it needs a little tweak, you know. So the game-bred tattoo is probably the next one. We'll see if we can come up with a a creative tattoo bet, though, at some point in time. I'm a former radio guy, so it it was really a radio bit for my podcast. And no one paid attention to the Betch Cohea Ronda Rousey bet, of course. But uh, the 209 tattoo got on Nate Diaz's radar, and people, people paid attention to that one. But I don't know. We'll see. I, I, I can assure you that the 209 will not be the last tattoo bet that I make. And the game bread one may be next. Yeah, but see, that, I, I just, I got to get that tattoo. So I guess I could say, oh, if, if Masvidal becomes the undisputed champion, I'll get the game bread tattoo. But I think we got to get that one regardless in respect to the man. True. Um, but kind of circling back to this women's strawweight fight, that rematch, between Rose and Jessica, how do you see that one playing out? I'm excited to see where Rose Namajunas is at mentally, right? Because she obviously pulled out of this fight earlier this year when it looked like we were going to be able to get a show off the ground. So I think she's going to be in a great place mentally. And usually when she's in a great place mentally, she looks like the best strawweight in the world. You know, Zhang Wei Li wants to fight mm-hmm. Rose because she believes she's the most credentialed, qualified, best most well-rounded martial artist in that division. So I certainly think Rose is the more well-rounded fighter, but 
my Brazilian soft spot's going to come out too. I mean, Andrade is one of the winningest women in UFC history, and uh, I think she deserves so much credit for putting her belt on the line right away three months later in China against Zhang Wei Li. So I do not think we have heard the last from Andrade. I love watching her fight. I've called most of her UFC career, and uh, again, that just speaks to the depth of the card that you're going to see that fight, you know, second in on pay-per-view. But let's uh, go back to what we have this weekend because these fights are outstanding. They're One great. that really caught my eye, I believe it's the co-main, Mickey Gall and Mike Perry. Platinum Mike Perry. He's got his girlfriend in this corner for this one. Mickey Gall, I think he's had a lot of fights recently that were canceled. A lot of different changes in opponents. A lot of hype behind him. Kind of up and down to start things off. How do you see this one going down? So you got to start with the strength of schedule because even though Mike Perry is 6-6 six and six in the UFC, he's fought a lot of elite welterweights, Vicente Luque and Jeff Neal and, and several others. So even though... You know, Mickey Gall's five and two in the UFC, which is a lot more shiny than six and six. Uh, he just hasn't fought near the competition of Perry, so that's why Mike is a three to one favorite. It's the strength of schedule. But I like what Mickey Gall has done. You know, I thought in his last fight, I think Salim Tuati, uh, he showed some discipline. He showed an elevated fight IQ. I thought his striking looked like it had improved leaps and bounds. So I do think Mickey Gall, at twenty eight years old, is twenty eight years old, is evolving more into a total package. Um, and Perry, I just don't know what to expect. I think I'll have more insight when I sit down with him on Thursday, but he's totally revamped his training. He's no longer in Florida, right? I don't know who his coaches are. I don't know who he's been training with. Uh, I know he has a new girlfriend and presumably an ex-wife at this point in time, but I'll have more intel for you on Perry on Thursday, but I do believe right now, Mickey Gall at plus 240, I think there's value there because he is the better grappler and he is evolving in a way that I think is encouraging. I think he's learned so much from that Diego Sanchez fight. You know, I think it humbled him a lot. You know, I know he had issues with the weight cut situation, but just coming out there and just kind of, he was the bigger guy, right? He was the bigger guy going in there. And the way that Diego handled him, I think it humbled him in a way. And you saw that in his last outing. And I think it's just kind of a positive momentum for him going forward. Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of people thought he was going to, run right through Diego Sanchez with all due respect and and he did anything but I know he was sick that night or whatever but you don't want to take anything away from Diego but yeah you need a fight like that right and he's had to grow up in the UFC and some guys aren't tough enough to be able to do that and yeah there was some favorable matchmaking early on if you want to call it that but uh I I like the young kid it comes from a good family and uh seems to have his head on and in the right place and then you brought it up too, uh, Dan Hooker, Dustin yeah. Poirier in the main oh. event. The implications for that fight, I mean, arguably the winner of that fight is right in there, is next in line or for title contention or one fight away, however you want to see it. Yeah, I mean, Tony Ferguson is certainly a name that that is going to factor prominently into any lightweight equation for me if he is healthy. But you're absolutely right, number three versus number five. I mean, Dan Hooker has been on this crazy run over the last several years. And even though... He called out Barboza, and that didn't go particularly well. But if you look at what he did before and after, he's run roughshod through a lot of these guys. Felder fight was close, of course. Um, but, yeah, I'm excited to see what Hooker can do. And I'm excited to see what Dustin Poirier can do after having nine months away from active competition because he beat Max Holloway, and then he had to turn around pretty quickly and put that interim belt uh, in that unification spot against Khabib. And I just think with all the miles on the tank of Poirier that taking nine months off here for whatever circumstance, Kobe or otherwise, I think that's going to benefit Poirier. But again, another betting line that's wider than I expected. Seeing Hooker plus 190, plus 200, I thought this fight would be a lot closer uh, according to Vegas, but we'll see. 
And earlier, I believe you briefly mentioned Kama Worthy, and he's fighting Luis Pena. So Luis Pena, I have never gotten a chance to call his fight before, so I've never seen him fight live before. And it's pretty rare for a guy who, I think it was 4-0 when he came into the UFC, pretty green. Um, but he's really had a lot of success, and I think he's really encouraging in this weight class. I love his frame. I love his cardio. I love his camp. Um, and I'm excited to see him fight live. I've never. It's very rare for me to have a guy this deep in the career that I haven't sat down with him and been able to extract anything and worthy. What else can you say about this guy? I mean, journeyman is an insult in a lot of respects, but he was a little bit of a career journeyman looking for that way to break that UFC door down. And to me, it's one of the most memorable UFC debuts ever. It was certainly the biggest upset of the year for me last year, and uh, we'll see how he spins it forward. It's been tough for him, though, I know, in Pittsburgh with the, with the with the virus. So, again, another guy that we're excited to sit down with and talk to Thursday. But, yeah, that fight jumps off the card for me, for sure. But is there a fighter that you haven't been able to call yet that is kind of on that bucket list? Gosh. You know, at, at this point, that's a great question. Um, I think I've talked to most of them at this point in time. You know, I know when for years when I was doing the smaller shows, I was so excited to get the chance to call some title fights, right? And I would sit home and watch these title fights. And as fun as it was, you know, part, the UFC fan in me yearns for the day where I get to sit down and watch a pay-per-view again with my brothers and just be a fan. As much as I want to be next to Joe and be in the building, I don't get to sit down and smoke a joint and watch pay-per-view anymore, you know? So my life has changed in that respect. Um, but yeah, I don't have a great name for you on the tip of my tongue. It probably would have been Luis Pena because I've admired him from afar and for one reason or another, I just haven't been assigned to uh, a fight of his yet. But hopefully this card stays together. We got a new fight today. Yeah. Hopefully this fight stays together and, and Pena's on it. One day, hopefully, we'll be able to sit down and smoke a joint and watch a fight together. Let's fucking do it, bro. <laughs> we'll make it happen. Yes. Curveball to a different sport. Let's talk basketball. What does LeBron James have to do to surpass Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time? Unless you're going to sit here and tell me that he's not, it's Larry Bird or Bill Russell because you are a Boston guy. Yeah, no, I will certainly defer to LeBron and Mike. I was a Kobe guy, and, and that obviously hit me very hard in January. Yeah. I got to meet Kobe, and I was so happy to be able to tell him. Like, I just want to say, man, and, and again, he just totally deflected when I paid him this compliment. But I said, you're, I, say what you want about greatest of all time. You're the greatest shot maker in NBA history. The degree of difficulty and Maybe unlike Jordan, you know, people were picking up Kobe at half court when he would cross half court. People are picking him up there. Jordan, that wasn't always the case. So for me, LeBron is, there's no point of comparison, right? Physically, what he brings to the table and the fact that he can still have a jump shot like that, there's no point of comparison. So I guess before I saw the last dance and had all this Jordan stuff freshly in my mind, I would have sat here and probably said LeBron James is the greatest of all time. Interesting. But now with all of this Jordan uh, just shit in my brain, uh, I think I lean back towards MJ. But certainly growing up a Celtics fan in the 80s, like... I didn't like Jordan. I of never course. had any huge problem with LeBron, even though I guess he was a little bit of a Celtics rival. I never hated LeBron. I mean, just for me, because growing up in the Chicago suburbs, 25 miles out of the city in the 90s, like yeah. the, that was the Bulls. Like the yeah. Celtics were for the 80s right. and for generations before that with Bill Russell. Um, I mean, that was that was my team. But the thing that always catches, catches me about LeBron, I know they're different players, and you want to make the comparisons to Magic Johnson, you know, not having that killer assassin, deferring to other teammates, the assist, the shot creator for others. But look, it's 6'6 six, six and 215 for Jordan and 6'8 and 260 for right. LeBron. How many defensive MVPs does right. LeBron James have? And the 
I mean, leading the league in scoring and what he did on defense, being the complete player, that's why I give the nod to Jordan. And look, 6-0 and in the finals. Well, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's undisputed. A, it's, per, it's perfection. And I do believe that there was a lot about Michael Jordan that I forgot candidly that I was reminded of over the last several months in watching that entire documentary, you know? So yeah, I, I don't know that my appreciation for MJ is any higher than it is right now. And I should have known the bears fan was going to be on the MJ side. I just have always had (laughs) such an appreciation for the physicality of LeBron and, um, and I, I hate when I see, you know, talking heads knocking James. But, yeah, for, for this audience, we'll say Jordan's the greatest of all time. And I'd say he's the second best. But I had to educate Helen. When we first started dating, she was keep going back and forth with me. LeBron's the GOAT. What, LeBron's are, you, what are your sports allegiances? Are you? Well, born and raised in Las Vegas. Yeah. Now I guess it's the Raiders. Right, right. <laughs> That's the most exciting thing for, for me living here now. Mm-hmm. It's been a year now living in Las awesome. Vegas. We're covering the Raiders in addition mm-hmm. to all the MMA stuff and just the crossover. We had Max Crosby, the the star defensive yeah. end for sure. the Raiders on. He's a diehard MMA fan. You know, he's been watching it since he was five. So I asked him, hey, who's your favorite MMA fighter of all time? Anderson Silva. Yeah. Who's the, he's like, that's his goat. That's his that's his goat. So it's just interesting to see that's cool. these these. Giants, you know, you know, because NFL and NBA are the two mainstream sports in this country. They have been for a long time. But to see those guys as fans of our sport and where this sport is coming and where it's been, fastest growing sport in the world, it, it's rewarding, right? Vegas is on fire. You know, I moved here in 2011. I wish I still lived here. I moved to South Florida to be with family uh, in 2015. And my wife and I didn't talk for 48 hours. But she was, she just didn't want to be in Nevada for whatever reason, wanted to be closer to family. I miss living here. I love seeing pro sports here. You guys have seen the way the Golden Knights have just been so embraced Incredible. by this community. And, uh, dude, that Allegiant Stadium went up in like five minutes, right? You see, in all these other states, they can't get their shit together. No. You build it here, they'll come, and they're coming in the fall. That $2 billion stadium. And they, they completed it, I believe, quicker than what's in Los Angeles yeah, oh, yeah. for the Rams and yeah. Chargers. And they start around the same time. Yeah, but that's so cool to see you guys branching out and covering the Raiders and... Uh, I've never had any animosity for the Raiders. I'll tell you one quick story. The Snow Bowl game, right, that led to Tom Brady's first championship, okay? Poor Charles Woodson, right? So I'll be honest with you. It was Raiders, Patriots, and I was there. I was in the building, right? So tuck rule game. Brady fumbles the football. John Anik leaves the stadium, right? He fumbled the ball, and I left. You left? So all of a sudden, I'm walking to my car up to snow in my, you know, and I hear the crowd cheer. So I go running back to Gillette Stadium or Foxborough Stadium, whatever the hell it was. I think it was Gillette at that point. Running back to the stadium. They wouldn't let me back in. So I listened to the end of that game in my car driving home, uh, and the Patriots obviously went on to win. But to this day, I stand by the fact that that was a fumble, and that's why I left. With all due respect to the Patriots and that first championship, he fumbled the damn football. And I feel for Raiders fans because I do believe they would have won the Super Bowl that year uh, had they gotten through the Patriots and that rule uh, not been in effect. What a great story to end this podcast on. John, I know you and Kenny Florian, you have a podcast. What would you like to plug right now for all your fans out there? Well, I just want to say it's a pleasure to sit down with you guys. Seriously, I know we've been talking about doing this for a while, but a pleasure to see your collective success and everything you got going on. Um, And yeah, we're cranking out a podcast every Monday. I feel like it's the best way for me to give back to the fans. It will always be free as long as the Anakin Florian podcast exists. It ain't going to be behind a paywall. And it's also therapeutic for me on a Monday, I think, to have an outlet to, to get some of this stuff off my chest because I work in TV, not radio, and TV is sound bites and short shit, and sometimes it's nicer to have a, a longer platform to uh, to spout off a little bit. Well, we really appreciate you. That was really fun. Sign us off. Me? 
Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh no. Isn't this what you did to me last week? I did. I did. Put I like putting her on the spot. I like I that. know, you always do that. So he's John Anik. He's Dave Schmolinson, aka the Schmo, and I'm Helen E. Sports. I guess we're out. Bye.